Father God, we want to hear your voice this morning. Lord, we are hanging on your words. Lord, you do speak. You do move. And God, you change everything. You change everything for us. You change everything for eternity. Um, And Lord, we are coming, expecting, asking you to speak to us and to move in this place here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. And if you brought your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open it up to Matthew, the 17th chapter. And we will continue our series in the book of Matthew. Every time we open Scripture, and every time we see what God has to say to us from the Bible, we are looking to see, can we learn something about God through this passage. And I would say that every page of Scripture tells us something about the character, about the nature, uh, about the love of God. And when we learn about more about God, we also then are learning more about ourselves because we see how God sees us. We see how God loves us. And then when we understand God's love for us, we see him more clearly. It helps us know how do we make our choices? How do we live our lives? What things do we do based on what we know and understand about who God is and who we are in relation to him? And so I hope this morning that as we look at this section of scripture from the end of Matthew chapter 17, that we'll see exactly those things that we'll see God a little bit more clearly, that we'll understand ourselves a little bit more clearly. And in doing so, it'll help us make decisions about how we live. So when we were last um, in the book of Matthew, we were in verses 22 and 23. And then um, we moved into Holy Week. We had uh, Celebration Sunday. We uh, recognized Palm Sunday. We, last week, talked about Easter and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And so that's actually the context in which we come into this story here today. So let's go back and reread verses 22 and 23 um, of the conversation that's taking place between Jesus and his disciples while they're in Galilee. And then we'll get to our passage for this morning. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the disciples, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So that's the setting that we come into this morning's passage with, is that Jesus is telling his disciples, the men who have been walking with him day to day, seeing him perform miracles, guys, I'm going to be betrayed I'm going to be killed. And they are exceedingly sorrowful as they're traveling. So they're on a journey, and we have sad disciples listening to the words of Jesus as we enter into this morning's passage. And it is going to bring us into Matthew 17, 24 through 27, the rest of the chapter. And this story is going to take place in Capernaum. Capernaum is the hometown of Simon Peter. Uh, and so as they've, the disciples and Jesus have been traveling around, they're now coming back to Peter's hometown. And so Peter's going to have a significant part to play uh, in this little passage this morning. And so that's where we find ourselves um, in the story. 
in the book of Matthew. So, let's read from verse 24 through the end of the chapter. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers? And Jesus said, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Lord God, bless the reading of your word this morning. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us and hearts to understand, um, Lord, the way that you want to continue to shape us. We give this service to you this morning. May our thoughts, um, our learning, our, our speech, our worship may be pleasing to you and bring you glory. Be with us here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In these few short verses, we see a few things emerge. We're going to talk about the temple, the temple tax. We're going to talk about the king's sons. And we're going to talk about the coin, the miracle of this coin. All right? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And let's start with talking about the temple. So here come a couple of guys, and they are collecting the temple tax. What is the temple tax? Well, it's not what you would think of um, in terms of taxation. So it's not you're paying this to the government, right? So this week is April 15th. If you haven't done your taxes yet, it's time. Um, Hooray, IRS. Um, But this is not that. We're not paying for the upkeep of the roads and the army and all that through this tax. This is a temple tax. So what's the temple tax? Well, way back in Exodus chapter 30, this was established by Moses. And the idea was that every Hebrew person would put in a couple of coins each year to pay for the upkeep of the temple. You're thinking, Moses came before Solomon, right? Solomon built the first temple. Moses was before that. Well, remember, they had at that time a tabernacle. So it was like a big tent um, that they would put up everywhere that the children of Israel would travel. They would set up their own tabernacle. It was like a portable temple. And Moses established this, like everybody pays a little something in so that it helps take care of this. It was a lot of work, setting up the tabernacle, maintaining it, um, keeping everything in the right way. But when, um, when the people of Israel finally settled in Jerusalem permanently, and they were no longer nomadic, Then they built the temple. Solomon built the temple. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. God told him, no, you've been a man of war. Um, There's blood on your hands. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. And so Solomon's temple becomes one of the wonders of the world. It's this magnificent building. And it's later destroyed. So it's raised to the ground um, during the um, conquests of invading armies. They destroy this magnificent temple. They take away all the gold. Um, But in the years before the birth of Christ, the temple is rebuilt. Not to its full glory, 
um, that it had been under Solomon, but it still is following the same structure and architecture. And so the temple is the center of Jewish life. It's where the religious service happens. It's where people gather together. It is a main focal point um, of all of life culturally for the Jewish people. And the temple is set up that there's sort of an outer court um, and everybody can come into the outer court. You know, it's called the court of Gentiles and, and so everyone's welcome there. Then there's an inner court that's just for Jewish people. So not everyone can go into the inner court, like few people can. And as you go closer and closer to the center, there's more and more courts. So one is the um, adult men can go into one court, just the priests go into one court. And then in the very center of the temple, there is the most holy place, the, the holy of holies. Nobody goes into the holy of holies except the high priest is able to go in once a year um, because the Holy of Holies is where the Spirit of God lives. And the thought is, is that if anyone goes into the Holy of Holies when they're not supposed to be there, they risk being struck dead because it's only the high priest goes in once a year into the most holy place. In fact, they put a curtain up in front of it so that nobody would accidentally look into it um, and die, right? So this veil separates the Holy of Holies, and we heard about that last week when we talked about Easter, because the veil is torn in two on Easter, because now there's no longer separation between the holiness of God's Spirit and all the rest of us. So everyone is now welcome to come directly into the Holy of Holies. So that's a little bit about the temple, but because it's such an important part of their cultural, religious, and family life, um, it is a very significant part of the city, and um, everyone happily contributes to this tax, this, this temple tax. So these guys who are coming around collecting the temple tax are understood to be church workers. They're, they're temple workers. They're not representing the Roman government. Um, they're saying, hey, help take care of this building that's important to all of us. And so they come and they ask Peter in verse 24, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Why would they ask this question? Everybody pays the temple tax. Why ask, are you guys going to pay it? Why don't they just say, it's time to pay the temple tax? Well, Jesus, in his teaching, has gotten a bit of a reputation for being someone who challenges traditions and customs. So people have been paying the temple tax, every single person paying the temple tax for 1,500 years, but it's not a safe assumption that just because everyone else has done it, that therefore Jesus is going to continue this tradition. Because Jesus has been challenging traditions and saying, okay, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, come to be with us to teach us a brand new way of seeing what it means to be a follower of God. And so it's a legitimate question because Jesus challenges a lot of these traditions and specifically, he's gotten a little bit of a reputation around Jerusalem for being anti-temple. He makes this claim where he says, one greater than the temple is now here. That's an astonishing thing for someone to say because the temple is the biggest deal. And when Jesus says, 
I'm greater than the temple? He shocks people. Another time he said, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. That's in John chapter 2. And it was, in fact, it was for that quote, if you remember when he's being tried um, before the high priest, it's for saying that, that they convict him and crucify him. Because they perceived that he was um, like some kind of terrorist who was out to destroy the temple and tear it down. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself again. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it again. But the result of this is that people are like, is Jesus against the temple? Jesus is not against the temple, but he recognizes what the temple was established for, and he also knows who he is. So the temple is built for sacrificing to God. It's built for worshiping God. And now here's God in human flesh, and people are still going back to the building instead of coming to the king. And so Jesus sees this happening, and all of this is kind of going on. Peter's kind of got an understanding about this, but he sees these guys coming, and they say, hey, is your teacher going to pay the temple tax? And so Peter's like, yeah, we're going to pay it. And then he goes into the house. So Jesus is making a new way of understanding how we connect with God. It's no longer about going into the correct court of the temple. Jesus is saying, now, connecting with God is about a relationship. It's about being a follower of Christ. It's about having faith in Jesus. A brand new way. In fact, Paul talks about this in his book to the church in Corinth. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? The temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? So the Jewish people, when they would have heard this, would have said, well, yeah, the Spirit lives in the temple, right? The Spirit is in that most holy place. That's why nobody can go in there. And now Paul is going, no, no, no. You are the temple. You are the temple. It's not a building. It's you. Do you not know, he goes on, um, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so the application here is that our faith is not about just following the traditions and customs that we've always known about or associated with what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is saying, no, there's something more. There's something bigger. And it's significant for us because it's one of the things that separates Christianity from a lot of other religions and faiths. Christianity is unique in part because we don't have a headquarters, right? There's no one place that is the geographic home of Christianity. We don't have a Mecca, Vatican, uh, you know, there's not a certain place that is the headquarters of faith. Even 4519 South DuPont Parkway is not the headquarters of the Christian faith. So Christianity is not geographic in nature. And Jesus is saying this is a whole new thing. It's not about what bloodline you're from. It's not about what country you live in. It's about who you are, and you are the temple. You are the church. 
And so the church, we talk about church, right? And we're here in the church building. We're having a church service. But this building is not the church. This service is not the church. We are the church. You are the church. When we gather together, we are the church. We are the temple of God. And Jesus is saying there's a brand new way of thinking about this. And so when you're in your workplace, when you're in your community, when you're in your family, you're taking the church with you, right? Because you are the church. We are the church when we're followers of God and his spirit is inside of us. So with that as a backdrop, Peter comes into the house. So Peter walks in. So he's just had this conversation. The guys are out there. They're waiting to collect the tax. And I don't know, like I try to picture what Peter's going through in this. He's like, temple tax. Um, uh, Yes, we pay it. Hold on. And he goes in the house and he goes to Jesus. um, And before he can even say anything, Jesus anticipates him and tells this story. And it's about, okay, we're the king's sons. So I get Peter going, oh, okay, so now I'm going to go tell him we're not paying the tax. And then Jesus is going to say, nevertheless, we don't want to offend them. And Peter's like, okay, we are going to pay the tax. And then Jesus is like, so go fishing. Peter's like, okay, (laughs) right? So just put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's kind of, he's along for the ride with us as we go into this story and as we, um, as we walk through this passage and unpack it a little bit. But Peter says, yes, we pay the tax. He, He turns, he walks into the house And before he opens his mouth, Jesus anticipates him. He knows what Peter's about to say. And Jesus says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take their customs or their taxes from? From their sons or from strangers? So, we got this temple tax situation. And Jesus is going to reframe it a bit for us. He's not going to miss the opportunity to teach a lesson, to paint a bigger picture of what's going on. And the picture that he's painting is of a king collecting taxes from his kingdom. So the king's job would be, you know, make sure that the borders are secure, take care of the, you know, make sure that people have food, upkeep the castle, like his own family would be fed from the treasury of the taxes. Um, and so the king has this big job, and, Pe- and Peter is like processing this as Jesus says, who does the king collect the taxes from? Well, Peter knows the answer, right? Jesus says, choice A, it's the sons. Choice B, it's the strangers. And Peter gets it right. He goes, it's the strangers. He collects the tax from the strangers. So it wouldn't make sense for the king to go collect taxes from his own kid so that he could buy food to give to his own kid, right? That exchange doesn't make sense. That's just not the way it works. And so Jesus has this picture in mind, and he gives it to Peter. And we can learn a couple things, even in the way that Jesus frames the question to Peter. In this analogy, Jesus only offers two options. And the two options are sons and strangers. Those are extreme options. Sons are members of your immediate family. They're they're among the people you know best that you care most deeply for. Strangers, you don't even know. 
they're totally distant. He doesn't say, um, there's, no, there's no room in Jesus' analogy here for second cousins, for acquaintances. He only gives two options, either sons or strangers. And that applies to us as well. Each one of us is either a son of God, a daughter of God, an immediate family member of Jesus, or we're a stranger to Jesus. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying Revelation. We read about the church in Laodicea, and because they were lukewarm, they were neither hot nor cold. They get spewed out of God's mouth. And so the first thing that we see in the analogy that Jesus sets up is, you're either a son or you're a stranger. So, which are you? Are you a son, a daughter, a stranger? This kind of thinking would have made a lot of sense to the Jewish people because they trace back their lineage all the way back to Jacob, right? So they all know which tribe they're a part of, which family they're a part of. And so, like, you would necessarily go, okay, yeah, I get it. He's talking about bloodlines and family. Got it. Jesus is not going to allow that in this situation. It's not about your bloodline. It's not about where you were born. It's not about who your family is. In fact, it's about your faith. Each one of us has the opportunity to choose whether we become a son, a daughter of the king, or whether we become a stranger. We are strangers until we put our faith in God, and then we immediately go from being a complete stranger to an intimate, immediate family member. Matthew 12, we read this a few weeks ago. He who is not with me is against me. This is this notion that there's not middle ground in the way God sees us. Every one of us is completely with him or completely against him, right? You are either part of God's immediate family or you're a stranger altogether. Here is the incredibly good news for us, for you this morning. You are not a stranger to God. God sees you. God knows you. God knows the kind of year that you are having. God knows the kind of week that you just had. God knows what your morning's been like. And he cares deeply about you. Galatians 4 describes it this way. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. When you choose to follow Jesus, you become a family member of God. You become somehow a a co-heir with Christ. Somehow in God's way of seeing things, you're like a sibling with Jesus. And think about Well, the way that you care for someone who's your child, this is telling you how God cares for us. He's saying that we are deeply important to us. And he values us as his children. And there's a a fascinating dynamic between this idea of intimacy with God 
and God's sovereign lordship over all creation. How can it be both true that I am like, I have this close relationship with God as a member of his family, and he is Lord of all creation, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the judge. Both are true at the same time. We are in a royal family together. This is, this is the mystery of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray, the very beginning, he gets after this mystery. He says, our Father, Abba, is the Aramaic word there. It means Daddy. Papa. It's a, it's a close word. And so Jesus is saying, Daddy, who is in heaven. Both are true. God is Lord of everything, and we are somehow in his immediate family and siblings with Jesus in the way he sees, it, sees us. And not only that, um, it's important that when Peter gets the, gets the uh, question right, he gets the quiz right, Is it from the sons or from strangers? And Peter says in verse 26, it's from strangers. Jesus says to him, well, then the sons are free. Jesus could have said, then the son is free. Why didn't he say that? Because he wasn't just talking about himself. He's saying, me and you, Peter, we're the sons. We're free. And me and you, we're the sons. We're the daughters. We're free, along with Peter. We are God's sons, and he wants us to be free. Free. They say this is the most powerful word in advertising and marketing, right? If you want to get people to pay attention to your ad, put this on it. Free. And that's why you even see things that sometimes say, like, buy three, get one free. I mean, they just want to say free. They're basically saying 25% off, right? But, but, they're, but they use that word free, you know? Buy one, get one free. Sign up for a 28-year contract and get this free, right? So because this word free, it gets our attention. We want free. It means I'm going to get it without paying for it, right? That sounds great. So we want free stuff, free things. You ever been driving down the road Right? And somebody has put something out by their um, end of their driveway with a little cardboard thing that says free. Right? And it's like, ooh, I never wanted a credenza like that till this moment. <laughs> Those tires aren't even going to fit on my car, but they're free. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's like that gets our attention. Okay? And so, so when things are free, that's the first thing we think about here is you get it without paying for it. Okay? And that applies in this situation. But this notion of freedom in Scripture goes beyond an economic exchange. There is another concept for being free that also applies here. We live in the land of the free, okay? And so free doesn't just mean I'm getting it without paying for it. Free also means I have liberty. I'm not captive. I'm not in bondage. And so the book of Matthew is written in the first century when slavery is very much a part of the society. And so everyone is either free or a slave. And so when Jesus says the sons are free, it doesn't just mean the sons don't have to pay. It means the sons have liberty. They have freedom because they're sons. God wants them to be free. And in Scripture, we read about freedom 
God has set us free. We're free from our sin. We're free from our guilt. We're free from our shame. He has set us free from so many things. And some of us come into a service like this this morning, and we may not feel free. There may be things in our lives that hold us captive, that tie us down, that oppress us, that enslave or ensnare or captivate us. And I would just tell you, you are God's kid, and he wants you to be free. He wants to break you free from those chains that hold you. Jesus talks about this more in the 8th chapter of John. In fact, he kind of makes some people mad in the way that he talks about it. Um, because he's talking to a group of people who, like, freedom was an important part of their culture as well, right? So Jesus says to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's talking to free people here, and they're kind of offended by that. Like, what do you mean set us free? We are free. We're not slaves. We're free people. So they said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus says, okay, let me explain this to you. This is how it works. Whoever commits a sin becomes a slave to that sin. And a slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So many people get involved in some sin or another because it seems pleasing, it it seems desirable, it seems exciting. And before you know it, you become enslaved to that addiction, to that feeling, to that pattern. And sin is like that. Sin creates slaves and captives because the devil offers something that seems really great and isn't because the devil can only offer lies. And Jesus offers truth. And truth sets us free. And when the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. And so when Jesus says, I came to bring liberty to the captive, to set free those who are oppressed, he's saying, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to set you free from the things that enslave you. And Jesus wants you to be free this morning. And it's not just free from Jesus wants to set you free from sin, from shame, from death. He wants to set you free from that stuff, but he also wants to make you free too. And so what will you do with the freedom that you have? When Jesus sets you free, what will be Lord of your life? What will be most important to you? What will you do with the freedom that God gives you? He's going to set an example of how to treat our freedom in a minute. But when we are free, we are free to worship God. We are free to serve God. We are free to give to others. We are free to love our neighbors. We are free to read the scripture. We are free to come together as a church. We are free to be the people that God created us to be and live the lives that he designed for us to live. And so it's not just free from the stuff that captivates us. It's also free to live the purpose that we were designed to live. So when he says the sons are free, that's a really big deal for us. That is a very significant freedom 
that God is offering to us, because he values us, because he loves us, because we are his kids, he wants us to be free, free from the law of sin and death, and free to worship him in spirit and in truth. Which brings us to the coin. Verse 27. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the... Okay, hold on. Lest we offend them. Can I just talk about that for a second? All right, so the first thing I take from this, like, we don't want to offend them, is the notion that, like, Jesus has a plan and a purpose, and he doesn't want this moment to derail his purpose, right? So he knows his plan, his purpose, is he is going to go die on the cross, right? He is going to achieve our redemption, our reconciliation to God. He is going to, all that, um, for once and all, set us free from hell, and he is going to give us the opportunity to live forever with God. That's his purpose. He's on it. He doesn't want an offense to get in the way of him achieving that purpose. But who is it that he doesn't want to offend? It's the people collecting the temple tax. It's the people coming to collect the, the two drachma coin that will go into the temple treasury. Right? It's, the, it's the high priests, it's the, it's the Pharisees, it's, it's the people who run the religious institution. He doesn't want to offend them. Why is that shocking? Let's think about what happens with silver coins like this one through the rest of the book of, the Ma- of Matthew. We've talked about them over the course of the last couple of weeks. Okay? They took 30 of these coins and put them in a bag and gave them to Judas to betray Jesus. They took some of these coins and gave them to false witnesses to lie about Jesus so they could convict him and crucify him. They took some of these coins and gave them to Roman guards to lie about Jesus rising from the dead and say he never came out of the tomb. Jesus is giving money into that, and he doesn't want to offend them. Are you kidding me? They are an offense. And yet Jesus doesn't want to offend them. That was the most shocking part of this whole story for me. More than the miracle, more than anything. Until I realized that this is so like Jesus and the character of Jesus. Because you know who else offends Jesus and is an offense to him? Me. You. I mean, how many times in our hearts and our actions do we offend a perfect and holy God? How many times do we betray his trust in us? And yet Jesus is so humble that he says, I don't want to put anything in between our, in front of our plan right now. We're going to keep going. And so we see something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to offend the very people that he came to die for. Even though they would betray and crucify him and lie about him, he still loves them so much that he's willing to sacrifice and and give to them, knowing that where their hearts are, but he still has hope for their redemption, and he still is on his plan. And that gives me such hope for how Jesus sees me. So no matter how great my debt is, no matter how many wrong things I have done, no matter how many times I have gone away from God's plan for my life, Jesus still loves me, and he still cares enough about me. And I see the humility of Jesus in this, lest we offend them. Wow. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea and cast in a hook 
and take the fish that comes up first. By the way, Jesus is now speaking Peter's language here, right? Peter's a fisherman. So Jesus says, hey, here's what I need you to do. Go fishing. Peter's like, yes. <laughs> it's like telling Pastor Allen, all right, here's what I need you to do. Get your golf clubs and head down to the course, <laughs> right? Like, yep, all right, I'm in for that. Not only that, he's going to tell him how to fish, okay? It, it's not just, um, you know, throw a net in. It's throw a hook in. Jesus is giving a specific instruction here. Lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So it's going to pay the price for both Peter and Jesus. So Jesus is going to do this miracle. He could have said, you know, go check the couch cushions and find a silver shekel. You know, he could have said, oh, you know what? I'll bet if you look in the bottom of the washing machine, they didn't have washing machines. Go look in the creek where we wash the clothes. I don't know. Like they, somebody could have come up with the, but but he wants to perform a miracle, right? He's going to perform this miracle, not so that he can say, hey, look, everyone, I am the Lord over the fish, right? He's doing it for a purpose and for a plan to provide something. And he's teaching Peter a lesson about God's provision in this, that Jesus can do this. He can provide. He can make a way. Do you ever wonder, like in the rest of fish, Peter's fishing career, like, did he look in the mouth of every fish he ever caught from then on? Like, hold on, before you skin that one, like look in there. I've, I always wondered about that. I don't know. Um, but, um, but Jesus sends Peter fishing to go find um, a coin. By the way, um, the specific um, wording here in the Greek is that it's a silver shekel, which is worth exactly four drachma, um, which was the exact amount. This coin is the exact amount to pay for the temple tax for two. So the provision exactly matches the need that they had. It reminds me of this verse in Philippians that says, My God shall supply all your need. How often do we want to stop at that verse right there, by the way? <laughs> hey, my God shall provide all your needs. Great, see you later. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Even if it did stop there, I would say, okay, God will provide everything I need. I know he's not going to give me everything I want, but surely he will give me everything that rises to the level of being a need. Yes, God will provide all your needs. He'll supply everything you need as you walk in faith to follow him. But the verse doesn't end there. My God shall supply all your needs according to... His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. According to his riches means he's going to, he has enough to cover what you need, okay? No matter what circumstance you're running into, no matter what challenge you face in the coming week, you're not going to tap out God's riches, okay? He's got you covered. No matter what's going on, God has an adequate supply to meet your needs, okay? but it's according to his riches and glory, God's glory. Lest there be any confusion about that, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so God will supply all your needs, but it's not about you. God will supply all my needs for his glory. It's because he has a plan and he has a purpose and it's bigger than what I can see or what I can understand and he's going to supply every need that I have as I follow him 
for his glory, to bring himself glory and honor. And I get to be a part of that. We used to have this expression. We would talk about um, walking by faith and living by faith, right? Maybe you even heard, like, take a step of faith. And the concept here is you you take a step out, not knowing where your foot's going to land, but you know God told me to do it, and he provides what you need for that step. And then you take the next step, and God is there to meet you with everything that you need. And so God will do that as we are faithfully, obediently prioritizing him because we are his children. He cares about us. He'll meet our every need according to his plan, according to his purpose. And his plan is always going to be bigger than what we understand. His purpose is always going to go further than what we can see because he's God. He can see it all and I can only see what I can see. And so God is calling us to live by faith, knowing that he will meet our every need as we take that step. And look what God can do as we take steps in obedience. So, we wanted to, in this little story about the temple, the king's sons, and the coins, we were hoping to learn something about the character of God. We've learned actually a lot about the character of God about how he sees us, and then how he wants us to live. So let's just kind of summarize what we've talked about here this morning. First, Christianity is not about a place or a tradition. Jesus makes a whole new way for us to relate to God. I'm glad you're here this morning. It's important that we come together. But being here in this place is not what makes you a Christian. Forty years ago, Keith Green famously said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. (laughs) I like that one, right? That kind of makes sense, right? So I'm glad you're here. You should be here. But being here doesn't make you a Christian or a hamburger, right? But what makes you a follower of God? What makes you part of God's family? What brings you into that immediate family sonship where he's adopted you and you call him daddy is when you decide to put your faith in him, make him Lord of your life, follow him, accept the sacrifice of Jesus, and live your life for Christ. And so it's not about being born in the right place or to the right family. It's not about where you come from or what you have It's about putting your faith in Jesus and living for him, trusting him every step of the way. And when we do that, when we follow Jesus, we are not a stranger. You are not a stranger to God. You belong in his family forever. Forever. This notion of where we belong and where we're accepted and where we fit in I think is like it's hardwired into us. We, we want to find those spots where we fit in and those places where we feel like rejected or, or mocked or put aside. We don't want to go back to those places, but the places where we belong, those are our people and we want to be there. And this is a year that has really revealed some things to us about where we belong and where we fit. I mean, I think this is one of the hardest years to be a teenager and and trying to fit in the world and and figure that out. I mean, how many people do you know, kids and adults, who have 650 
Facebook friends, and no one they can really trust. I mean, if my whole identity is about my position on the football team, and there's no football practice, there's no football team, where, where do I fit? If, if my whole identity is, is about the instrument I play, and there's no band for a year, where do I fit? Where do I find acceptance? Where do I belong? If my whole identity is about being accepted and esteemed at work and where I fit in there, and I spend the whole year on Zoom, or I lose my job, or work is different, where do we fit? Where do we belong? We belong in God's family forever. (laughs) We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And God is saying, you belong with me. You're my kid Let me wrap you in my arms. This is where you belong. This is where you'll always be accepted when you follow me. You are God's beloved son or daughter, and he wants you to be free. Because he loves you, because he values you, he wants you to experience freedom. Freedom from your stuff, your your baggage, your, your sin, and freedom to Be what he always imagined you could be, what he created you for. The life that God designed you to live, he is setting you free to live that life. And as you are obedient and as you follow, he will supply your every need according to to his purpose and plan, according to his riches and glory. It won't be the things that you necessarily think you need or believe you need, but it will be the things you actually need. And you want to know what you need most? The love of Jesus. And he will supply that without end. So, it's actually kind of a lot from those four little, five little verses that we read this morning. And so, every time we open God's word, and every time we see what does God have to say to us in this passage, we will see God more clearly will see his character, and you cannot avoid seeing the love of God just come alive in the stories of Scripture. And because of that, it tells me who I am. It it tells me where I belong and where I fit in the world, and it shows me then how do I live and how do I walk by that faith that he calls me into. Be encouraged this morning. God sees you. God loves you. You are his beloved child And when you follow him, he will be with you forever, meet your every need, and never leave you alone. Let's pray.